Hello, this is Eden on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge. Welcome back to my show, Garden of Eden. In today's episode, I'm going to be sharing an interview I did with Rosetta Lee. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, this is Eden on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge. I'm joined here today with Rosetta Lee, um, Seattle Diversity Speaker and trainer. She works as an outreach specialist at the Seattle Girls School and is an expert in diversity, inclusion, equity, and more. Uh, Rosetta, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Eden. (laughs) And is there anything else that you'd like to share about yourself as part of your introduction that I missed? Um, No, I guess um, I always like to say uh, I'm a middle school science teacher and I'm an accidental diversity consultant where (laughs) I was just trying to share what I was learning to communities. And then uh, that is actually my biggest focus at Seattle Girls School now. Um, But I always think of myself as a classroom teacher. (laughs) Uh, So I guess that that's a good place to start out. Could you talk a little bit more about how you got into your profession? Like what inspired you? Mm. Yeah. So for me, uh, a passion of mine has always been diversity, inclusion, equity, social justice. And I was also passionate about bringing it into my classroom um, because oftentimes uh, schools treat DEIJ work or, you know, as the summary for all of those um, topics um, as something that you do on the side, right? On it with assemblies and with programs and with groups, but not necessarily integrated. And I think about how much of my own growth and learning around how to be effective across many forms of difference, uh, how to reject societal stereotypes and be my authentic self, all of those things I learned either in college or on my own as an adult. And I felt like young people are capable of so much more and they're thinking about the world in complex ways. And so um, in school, why not introduce those topics and integrate those topics? Um, So I used to do things like when I taught genetics, I would teach about how inheritance works, right? But at the same time, it was also important to me that students learn that there is actually no genetic basis to race, right? Um, And that race is actually a social construction that was created for social, political, and economic reasons. Uh, I wanted them to know what healthy eating meant and why whole foods and fresh fruits and vegetables and organics were important. But at the same time, Uh, Some communities have easy access to those things and others do not. And so what does it mean, for example, that an organic apple is actually more expensive in a socioeconomically poorer neighborhood than a richer neighborhood? So for me, integrating it was um, actually always the key. And then, um, you know, others uh, became interested in some of the work that I was doing. And so I started presenting at conferences and things like that, just to be helpful to other teachers who are interested in doing things like this. And then, um, and then I started to get invited out to do um, presentations for schools and colleges and universities, nonprofits, um, community organizations. So uh, that sort of took over a lot of the pull on my time. And so, um, you know, I miss full-time teaching big time, uh, and I recognize that this is important work, and if I can uh, affect students' lives uh, by supporting teachers and parents and, uh, you know, community members at large, then uh, this is where I'll focus my energy until I am no longer needed. (laughs) Okay, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I kind of speaking a little bit about student communities Mm -hmm. and talking about differences between 
students, I wanted to focus in a little bit on the Mercer Island community in specific. Mm -hmm. So diversity comes from all sorts of things, but I think specifically economically, culturally, and racially, Mercer mm -hmm. Island most definitely lacks diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and some might refer to it as a bubble. I'm one of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, what are some ways that we can not only bring more diversity to Mercer Island, but also work to educate ourselves on experiences um, that differ from our own? Yeah. Um, so I think about it in a couple of ways. Uh, number one, I think oftentimes when, especially those from historically marginalized groups are thinking about where to settle and where to build community, they're going to go to places where they um, feel like um, they're going to be welcome, right? And so I know that as an Asian person, as somebody who grew up working class poor, somebody who's an immigrant, somebody who identifies as a bisexual queer, like I need to know that I'm going to be safe in the places where I live, right? And so I'm very intentional about seeking out uh, neighborhoods and communities where I might find more mirrors like me and or I see a level of commitment um, among the community and people, right? And so I often think about whenever um, communities want more diversity, it's just not a, it's not just about like, you know, we would welcome it. It's also about what is the environment and how is it conducive or not so conducive to historically marginalized groups feeling like they belong. And so for me, that is actually about communities, even if they are relatively homogenous, to uh, engage in conversations around things like race and class and culture. Um, it is about uh, the community actually willing to reach out across many communities and build relationships. Because ultimately, if I, let's say, go to a community lecture and I engage with somebody from Mercer Island and they are talking in really intentional ways and naming some of the challenges and also what they themselves and their uh, communities around them are doing to create equity and inclusion, then I'm more likely to check out that neighborhood. Without that information, I sort of look at it and go, yeah, why would I go there just on my own just yeah. because, right? Uh, and then in terms of uh, like building more uh, relationships across difference, one of the great things about today's technology is that it does allow us uh, to commu communicate and connect across many different uh, uh, sort of uh, factors of life, right? And so whether it is... Um, you know, uh, thinking about engaging in online communities where there are shared passions and values, whether it is um, trying to find and connect intentionally with other folks who say, uh, who, who are in, this, in similar boats, like we are in an increasingly um, segregated society where um, this idea of a multicultural sort of multilingual, multi-class uh, sort of town is uh, becoming less and less um, present. In, in, in that way, how do we actually challenge the fact that we're geographically separated by connecting? Um, I think so far, you know, um, I, I think we can take a lot of lessons from young people actually, because I think about how it used to be that a young person, let's say, who is transgender or gay, if they were living in a community uh, where that was not okay, if they were 
in a school where it was not okay. Um, they were able to connect with other youth and uh, supports and community members and adults who mirrored them um, through online spaces so that literally, um, I think more students, uh, more young people survived by finding those communities. And so I think about how, what does it mean to, for us to engage um, intentionally seeking out communities if we feel like we're in a bubble to seek out those communities who are trying to create uh, multifaceted communities. Mm -hmm. So, so something that I I kind of toggle with is mm -hmm. I see Mercer Island oftentimes as a bubble and I work to seek out conversations. I, I completely agree with what you said about how conversations, they break down barriers. That's mm -hmm. why I love radio so much. Mm -hmm. um, get to talk to all kinds of people. But where I struggle is, I feel like a lot of the people that I hear say problematic things, or mm -hmm. I would like to challenge their beliefs, aren't the people who are actively seeking out conversations mm -hmm. and trying to break down the bubble because they don't see it like that or don't mm -hmm. want to. How do you reach those people? Yeah, um, you know, that's an excellent question because I think a lot of folks, I think the self-perception is I am open-minded, I am not biased, uh, I am, you know, uh, I treat everybody the same, right? Um, and I often think about how, you know, when I, when I engage uh, in conversation, I'm always reminded that people are basically good, right? And I try to tap into that because I think one of the things that happens in today's culture is that folks who are sort of intentionally doing uh, like work around diversity um, or trying to increase their facility around diversity, inclusion, equity, social justice, um, the way they try to change is by judging. Does that make sense? It's like, oh, that was really offensive. You shouldn't say that, et cetera. And especially in a society that paints bias, like it's a moral failing, a lot of folks don't want to hear it, right? And I think about how we can actually, like one of the strategies I often use is actually just asking open-ended questions or like um, trying to find something uh, that is uh, like uh, affirming in that person or the relationship as I intervene. So when I say things like, you know, um, I noticed that you often say uh, we should powwow about that. And you know, that's something I used to say all the time until a native person let me know how significant and important and sacred powwows are. And the analogy she used was, you wouldn't say, let's go have some juice and crackers and communion. I'm like, of course not. And so it made me realize how dismissive that was sometimes. So I'm trying not to say it anymore. Um, I thought you like I thought I would share this with you in case you would be interested too. So for me, it's about like there's a difference between saying saying uh, casual gatherings powwow is actually really racist and you need to stop mm -hmm. versus um, a relational approach. Um, and I think folks are much more willing to hear it. And if I can tap into that innate goodness and in people. Sometimes I, I find more um, effectiveness. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I think in such an era of political polarization, mm -hmm. and it seems very intimidating to talk about certain mm -hmm. subjects out of fear of being wrong or fear mm -hmm. of someone thinking the complete opposite. But so you you were talking about word choice, like mm -hmm. not using powwow because it's offensive, yeah. and 
I guess kind of relating to that, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just start with like what are microaggressions, mm-hmm. some examples, and then how do they affect other people? Sure. Um, so microaggressions uh, is a technical term that was coined in the 1970s by psychologists to describe the impact of um, everyday slights. Okay. And so uh, up until that point, conversations about things like racism and sexism were really overt things, right? Uh, People being physically or emotionally harassed, like being fired, like those kind of big things. And psychologists were noticing there are actually like everyday interactions, sometimes intended, but oftentimes not, that create uh, the effect of or the impact of otherness, Um, not because of the size of it, but because of the frequency of it. Um, and so the other term I like to use is accumulated impact, right? It's not about the size of the impact, it's actually the accumulation of it. And many of us already know what accumulated impact feels like. Like if you've ever taken a road trip with really little kids, you know what accumulated impact feels like because the first few times they're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You're like, no buddy, we got eight more hours to go. But about the 60th time, they're like, are we there yet? You kind of want to chuck them out the window, right? And that is not because you're awful. It's not because they're awful. It's because we have a hard time experiencing the same things over and over again, right? And so for me, um, like the, the thing to realize is oftentimes um, we get hung up on the words. Some people who are impacted by it are like, it doesn't feel so micro. It sort of like consumes a lot of my psychic energy interacting across difference. And for, for folks who are doing it, they're like, there's nothing aggressive. I just didn't know, right? And my thing is like, um, you know, let's, let's not get hung up on the words and think about like, how, how might I be contributing to an overall impact? Like, so here's the thing, as an Asian person, um, who like works with lots of communities. Uh, I meet easily 20,000 people a year, right? And um, I know that folks are just trying to express curiosity or make small talk, but this is a conversation that I have over and over again. People are like, so Rosetta, where are you from? And I'm like, well, I'm from Seattle, Washington. And they're like, no, where are you really from? And I'm like, I was raised in Boston. And they're like, no, originally, where are you really from? And I'm like, I was born in South Korea. And they're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Except it doesn't, right? Because there's nothing in my vocabulary, my accent, my mannerism, my way of being that says I just got here, right? Uh, But this is a question that I get four to 10 times a month. You know what I mean? And there are days when I am doing fine, I'm in a good mood, I'm feeling expansive and educational. And so when they're like, no, where are you really originally from? I'm like, I think the question you're trying to ask is what's your ethnic heritage? Because that's Korean, but I'm actually a US citizen from Seattle, right? But there are also days, like I went to a meet and greet where seven conversations in a row went, where are you from? Where are you really from? No, originally, oh, Korea, I love kimchi. And they moved on, right? And so the eighth person that comes up, I am really done with this conversation. So they're like, where are you really originally from? And I'm like, I'm from my mother's womb and you, and that is not because I'm angry or hypersensitive. I am tired of this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so when African-Americans are told you are so articulate or hair is touched without permission, when Latinx folks are asked like, like how did your family arrive in the United States or say this in Spanish or multiracial folks are asked like what are you or women or girls are told you play football and use power tools 
when elderly folks are like, you know, congratulated because they know how to use an Apple watch and an iPad. When adoptive parents are asked like, have your kids met their real parents yet? Like there's nothing openly hostile about any of these, but when they happen over and over again, the messages that go across is Asians feel like, what, where do you really come from? Where are you really from? Because people like you aren't actually Americans or black folks here, um, you're articulate and I didn't expect you to be, or your body boundaries don't count. Latinx folks here, like there must be some sort of dramatic and possible illegal means by which you ended up here. Or just because you have this heritage, you must know the language. Even though we wouldn't assume that of somebody with French heritage, right? Um, or like women and girls ba basically being told like you are the weaker sex and yet look at you do these powerful things. Elderly folks basically hearing at, at a certain age, you can't learn new technologies, how'd you manage, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Adoptive parents basically hear, you love your kids and you may lay down your life for your kids, but you're not a real parent unless you got blood connections. Mm -hmm. Like none of this is what we mean and all of this is what gets heard. So for me, the impact of it, and not everybody responds the same way, right? I'm not saying these are things you can never say, but I'm just saying if there's a strong reaction, there's a reason why. Mm -hmm. Well, first off, Thank you so much for sharing your personal experience. I think hearing, so for me personally, I don't experience microaggressions mm -hmm. and I am so lucky for that. So other people who are like me can be really hard to see something like that when you don't experience it. Mm -hmm. So hearing about how other people do is yeah. very eye-opening and kind of, I guess, talking about more your experience in your career you've had so many conversations mm -hmm. spoken at so many different places mm -hmm. ha have there been any moments that were super defining maybe you talked to someone you disagreed with and it it taught you something or someone said something that, that you had to correct or some anything yeah, I guess, um, you know, like I said, ultimately, when I started to tap into and leverage people's basic goodness, um, I uh, think I started to, because um, I, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, in my 20s, I think, when I was waking up to a lot of systemic, uh, like, injustices and um, sort of learning about dynamics that perfectly describe some of the, the feelings and and incidences of my own life and that, you know, thinking like, gosh, like others have experienced it too, right? Um, I remember very much being in an angry phase where I was like calling people out and like mm -hmm. pointing out every injustice that I saw and in pretty like aggressive ways, right? And I'm not, I don't apologize for that and I don't regret that. But um, I think a, a defining moment for me was when I realized, um, my actions may be highlighting uh, some problems and maybe making people aware, but mostly what it was doing was people would stop doing those things in front of me, but mm -hmm. they wouldn't necessarily have an aha. And so for me, I think it was this realization of, um, I, I, don't, I don't want people to stop doing um, something because they're scared. I want them to stop doing something because they tap into something deep inside them that says, actually, that's not right. And that's not who I want to be. And so I think um, that was definitely a defining moment. Another defining moment was realizing that um, I, I actually have to uh, stop spending my energy on people who don't want to be 
convinced. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I think my thing was, if I can talk to somebody who has overt sort of like attitudes and biases and prejudices um, for groups of people, and if I can like change their mind, then I can like change the world. That used to be my philosophy, right? And what I realized was um, I was spending my energy, like a, a mentor of mine, some an, an elder in this work, I was uh, telling her about my frustration with a conversation that went terribly wrong. <laughs> and she said, uh, you know, you can always call me up and commiserate and let me know about what happened and all those things. And I will patch you up and uh, send you back along the way. But I just want you to know that it, it sounds to me like you are describing running full force into a brick wall and now you are bleeding. And I'm like, mm -hmm. wow. Uh, that is a really interesting way to put that because really, I mean, there are some, some people who are brick walls. And so I think another sort of seminal moment for me is um, I don't go into presentations or conversations uh, thinking I'm going to transform everybody. I go in thinking, well, now there are some folks in the room who are the styrofoam walls. Like you give them some information and some perspective and they're like, ah, and they're mm -hmm. transformed right away. And then there are the neoprene walls where um, there isn't a whole lot of give initially, but with steady pressure, you know that it's moving. And then there are brick walls who no matter how strong you are, how effective you are, how much physics you know, that brick wall is not gonna be moved with one person pushing. And so for me, I go in um, hoping to reach the styrofoam and neoprene walls and move them a little bit further along. And I don't feel like a failure whenever I don't reach the brick walls because there were brick walls and it has nothing to do with my effectiveness. It's, it has to do with their willingness. I love the brick wall neoprene styrofoam analogy. I think that's awesome. And I also, love your philosophy of going into conversations, seeing the good in people. Because I think I was talking a little bit about political polarization earlier yeah. and just differences in opinion. And I think it's easy to see someone as bad instantly because they disagree with you on one thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really not the way it is. It's not black and white. It's very complex. It's very complex. I was having a conversation with somebody who was actually really against, like his thing was, we need to basically stop immigration, right? And of course, as an immigrant, I could feel a way about that and get into an argument right then and there about why immigration is good. But my thing was, um, tell me more, like, what, like, why do you think that would be the important thing to do? And really, as he got talking, uh, what he was getting at was, he's like, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid watching my dad work hard and he brought in a, a good income and he was able to save up and buy a home and then uh, save enough and then send us kids to college and save enough and then uh, was able to take care of himself in retirement. And I'm working just as hard as he is, if not harder, and I can't save enough to buy a house. And I can't, I worry about being able to send my kids to college. And I think I worry that they're just going to end up with massive amounts of debt and start off life at a deficit and retirement. Gosh, at this rate, I'm going to be working until the day I drop. And I like I think it's because there aren't enough jobs for everybody and so if we stop immigration then um, there will be enough jobs that pay well enough for everybody and we can sort of like go back to that um, sort of way of being 
And ultimately, he's talking about something that I agree with, which is I want hard work to yield things for families, right? Um, I And this is what I said. I want that too. I want people to be able to like put in a hard day's work and know that there is like money going into the bank and you can set up the next generation for a better future and that um, you will be something they rewarded. I want those things too. And I think about how the United States is actually more wealthy than ever, right? And what I worry about is the fact that the average CEO gets paid 243 times what the average worker gets paid. And I'm sure they do a complex job and they work hard, but I'm not convinced that they work 243 times harder Mm -hmm. than the average worker. And so for me, I just wish that when companies started to do better, not only the CEO got a raise and the uh, stockholders get a, get their their boost, but also employees mm-hmm. actually feel the benefit of that as well. And I'm pretty sure it's not immigration that's causing this issue. Yeah. Right? So ultimately, I, I needed to sort of tap into the human sort of like shared values part of us to have that conversation. And I think he, he heard me differently and I heard him differently because if I just stuck to that initial statement of we basically need to stop immigration and made a whole lot of judgment based on that, that conversation just wouldn't have gone that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything is so nuanced. Mm-hmm. And if someone says I'm against immigration, it's easy to make a judgment off of that. But see, you, you say like it was an issue with em- employment and differences mm-hmm. between CEOs and lower level workers. It's, there was so much more to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great thing to remember. And it it looks like we're about out of time, but <laughs> thank you so much for talking with me today. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Garden of Eden, which you can listen to every Saturday at 10 a.m. on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge. I hope you have a great rest of your day.